Good morning. It's good to be back here in this place behind this hunk of wood. And it's good to be in the book of Psalms, the songbook, the hymnal of the Bible. And while I was on vacation, uh, mostly while my granddaughters were napping, because otherwise I was just with them, right? I spent time thinking about the first psalm that I would preach on when I returned. And this wasn't easy. Uh, in case you don't know, know, there are 150 of them. I prayed for guidance. I eliminated the psalms I'd preached on in 2015 during our last summer in the psalms. But that still left a lot. I eliminated the ones that Sean and Brian and guest speaker from CBU did. So I just began uh, reading, uh, skimming through this great book. I was looking for something that just stood out, something that spoke to me that I felt would be good for us, a psalm that I felt bridges could benefit from. And when I came to the 23rd psalm, which I, uh, like most every pastor in the world, have preached on, I almost uneliminated it. Because there's a reason why it's so uh, beloved, so well-known, it provides an amazing picture of how God, in all circumstances, throughout life, cares for His people. And so don't be surprised if I, I take us through the 23rd Psalm, maybe one of these weeks, uh, but not today. As I pushed past the, the great shepherd's care for his sheep, I didn't get very far. Because when I read the 24th Psalm, I knew I'd found what I was looking for. And as I read it over several times, this was confirmed. I read it, in fact, last week uh, in our call to worship, if you remember. But let's read it again. And I said, let's. If you can and would stand, uh, why don't we read it together? Uh, we're, not gonna, we're just all going to read the whole thing. It's, I'm reading in the ESV version, and it's going to be on the screen in that version if you want to follow along and read out loud with us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah, which means take a pause, take a little break. Think about that for a second. Let that, what we've just read, soak in. Okay, that's good. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You can be seated as you let that soak in. I need to maybe have some lessons in reading out. I'm, I'm not used to reading with people reading, but you guys did a great job. Thank you. 
This psalm, uh, like many others, presents a majestic picture of God, the Lord. Lord, if you don't know, in all caps in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is uh, Yahweh, the name of God. It means something like the existing one, uh, which co- it comes from uh, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses at the burning bush asked God his name, and God replies, I am, or I am who I am. I am the self-existent, eternal one, we might say. So part of this psalm uh, is declaring the glorious nature of Yahweh, that God's people might worship him as he deserves, and that's crucial. It is, I believe, the main purpose for the psalms in general, and, and should be the main purpose for all uh, worship songs. I, was, uh, I do pay attention to our worship songs. I was paying attention as we were singing, and I noticed just how many of them even touched on the themes that we'll be touching on today, how, uh, how, how, it's, how it's all related. As God's people, we need to worship Him, and the Psalms provide us with that. We need to see who He is. We need to be reminded again and again. We need to see and grab hold of and believe and live based on His greatness, His majesty, His glory, His holiness, and we could go on. For it's when we truly see that we're transformed to be like Him. When we see who He is, we're transformed to be more like Him. That's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the glory of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord uh, does an ongoing one degree of glory to another, transforming work in our lives. As we see, as we take in, as we behold who God truly is, It must change us. It has to change us. And we see that in His Word. Throughout His Word, we see it in the Psalms and throughout. And so, that's part of the reason I want to look at this and any psalm. Part of the reason why I think it's good for us to take time to go through the psalms because they're written to reveal the glory of God. But there's another thing about this particular psalm that caught my attention. This is a psalm of David. Uh, King David, he wrote this. And here David asks one of the most important questions any person can ponder. David wants to know what God requires of him, uh, of anyone. What does God require of a person to allow them to enter into his presence? This is an ultimate question that faces every person who's ever lived. And it's posed and answered in different yet related ways throughout the Scripture. In fact, I took the title of this message uh, from the familiar verse in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says God requires us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with Him. And if we had time... Uh, We could look at these. What does he mean by that? We could relate them to what we're going to see in Psalm 24, but uh, this sermon is already long enough, so we're not going to do that. 
My point is the Bible in many places tells us that our Creator, Yahweh, the Lord God, has expectations, demands, requirements for those who He created. Do, we, do you get that? Do you understand that? I think this is one of the things that we sort of, in evangelicalism, sort of gloss over. And what's shocking to me is just how few people care uh, what those requirements are. And even fewer seek to fulfill them. I mean, if you are an atheist, if you claim you don't believe in God, that's one thing. But I've had conversations with people who claim to believe in God, but also say they've never really thought about what God uh, requires of them, what God wants them to do, how God wants them to live. Or, or they rightly assume... They can't live up to his requirements, and so they don't, don't even try. They never seem to be concerned about uh, what that means for them, uh, for their eternity. Part of our vacation uh, was attending Christina's family, Christina's, that's my wife, her family reunion in Omaha, Nebraska. And during that time, I was uh, taken aback uh, by some very cavalier statements her uncle made about going to hell. And mind you, this uncle grew up going to church, or mass at least. His son is a pastor. His grandson is gonna, going into ministry. Uh, he's not ignorant. He just doesn't want to confront God's requirements for his life. And so I'm, I'm just going to go to hell. And he's not alone. There are millions, billions probably now, of people uh, going about their lives who never stop to think or care if they're going in the direction that their Creator created them for. But as we come to Psalm 24, God, through David, brings us to a place where we must stop. We must think about this ultimate question of what God expects, what God requires from those He's created. What does it take for us to ascend the hill of the Lord, to stand in His holy place? No other question is more important than this. It's a question of where you'll spend eternity. It's a question of heaven or hell. And in Psalm 24, we not only find the question, but we also find the answer. And with the answer, first comes a sense of, uh, of fear, an understanding of our inadequacy, our inability to meet God's requirements. But with that fear uh, is followed by hope. Because God knows who we are. God knows how we're made. He made us. As David reminds us in Psalm 103, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103 is a good one too. I'm thinking about that one. God sees us. He knows our weakness. And he meets us in our needs. So along with that ultimate question of what he requires, we're going to see our ultimate hope. A hope everyone can experience. Now before the question, before the answer or the hope, David first establishes the foundation for what's to come. Why is, why is it that God can place his requirements upon you and me? Who does he think he is? Well, David gives us the answer. He's, he gives us the basis for God's requirements. That's our first point this morning. Psalm 24 begins, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Here we see the greatness, uh, the power, the majesty, the glory of the Lord, of Yahweh. And in that we see His righteous authority over us. Yahweh owns the world and everything in it. He created the land and the seas. And He filled them with all kinds of life. And we, those who dwell on the earth, that's us, we belong to Him. He created us and therefore He owns us. We belong to Him and therefore He has the right to demand our obedience. But there's more to belonging to God than His demand for us to meet His requirements. There's His ownership. What what does it mean that we are the Lord's? Well, I think we can answer that by looking at the way Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to help the church. Uh, there was a controversy going on in the church over eating meat sacrificed to idols. In Paul's day, much of the meat sold in the Gentile markets was slaughtered in pagan temples offered to idols. Imagine if uh, most of the meat at Stater Brothers had been butchered as part of a pagan occult ritual at a temple. Well, we could always go to Albertson. No, just kidding. Who would go to Albertsons? No. I used to work at Stater Brothers, so I'm biased. Okay. So what should you do? Should a Christian eat food that's been offered to an idol? What should you do if, if you're not sure whether the meat, where this meat came from? Well, Paul first uh, says not to participate in meat, knowingly participate in meat sacrificed to idols. Then he gives this instruction, quoting Psalm 24 in uh, chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24. What, what is Paul saying? If you don't know where that 16-ounce ribeye came from, Go ahead, enjoy it. Why? The earth is the Lord's. This meat may have been offered to a demon in sacrifice, but God still owns it. He created it. It still belongs to Him. The principle is we need not reject the things of this world simply because they've been misused. God created this world, and it, and we are His. Now, how does this apply to what we're looking at here. This not only applies to meat, it applies to people. All people belong to the Lord. Now, some may uh, wrongly think that God has uh, no claim over their lives. Worse yet, and this is, I think, where this application, where this uh, clears it up based on 1 Corinthians, maybe you think you couldn't possibly, uh, God couldn't possibly want you any longer like meat sacrificed to idols. You might have given yourself to other gods, to alcohol, to sexual sin, to wealth, the the seeking of of money. Or maybe you've even turned away from God and said at one time, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want. As Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. We kind of like that. That that says, I want to do it my way. And because of this, you think God wouldn't want you. However, know this. God created you, 
He created you in his image, and nothing you can do will ever change that. God made you, and he cares about you. So not only does God's ownership mean that he has the right to make requirements of you, it also means that God loves you and will, on his terms, because he's your creator, accept you into his presence. Let that give you hope as we move forward. You belong to the Lord, the Lord cares for you, and he will work that you are accepted on his terms. That will become clear as we move forward. Brings us to the question, uh, what are his terms? What does he require? And we find the answer in our second point, the person who meets God's requirements. In verse 3, David asks the question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who can come before God? What kind of people will be admitted into his presence? Uh, put simply, who will go to heaven in our vernacular? Now, before we see the answer, I want us to notice that within these parallel questions, David makes it clear uh, where God is. The hill of the Lord is a holy place. And we know it's holy because God is holy. As Isaiah writes, the seraphim, the angels in heaven go about declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is a holy God, which means He's set apart. He's unique from His creation. He's sinless. He's absolutely pure. So how does God's whole, what, is, what does God's holiness mean for those who seek to come into His presence? Well, you may have heard this before, and we'll hear it again as we, when we get to verse 4. The Bible teaches that to come into the presence of God, you too must be holy and pure. God cannot, will not, allow sin in His presence. Have you heard that before? Maybe only I heard it. Anyway. But what you might not understand is why this is true. Basically, because God is holy, God is just, God is righteous and pure. Uh, to be true to himself, he must judge sin. He must judge the sinner. Uh, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we read, The Lord your God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Well, the context, in the context, God, this is God's response uh, to those who are worshiping idols. He's a consuming fire that destroys idolaters, that destroys sinners. Therefore, the worst place for a sinner to be is in the presence of God. Let me say that again. The worst place for a sinner to be is in the presence of God. Think of it this way. If you're barbecuing, we got a lot of meat things going on here. I went to a, had a lot of barbecue when we were in St. Louis. It's good. Even Omaha. We're in Omaha for steaks and St. Louis for barbecue. I didn't lose any weight on my vacation. I'll just say that. But if you're barbecuing over hot coals and you spill barbecue sauce on the middle of your clean, pure white shirt, uh, it will stain. Your shirt's no longer clean. It's no longer pure. However, if you spill barbecue sauce on the hot coals, on the flames, uh, do they get stained? Are they now impure? No, the fire burns the barbecue sauce. 
And God's holiness and justice is like the fire, the hot coals. He's a consuming fire. When sin and impurity come into God's presence, does God get dirty? Like your shirt? No. His holiness consumes sin like fire. Therefore, those who come into God's presence must be holy uh, for their own protection. You must be clean and pure to come before Him, or His holiness uh, consumes us in our sin. So now we know why sinful people cannot enter into the presence of God. Not because our sin will in somehow taint God, rub off on Him. That's not possible. Sinners cannot enter the presence of God because they wouldn't last a millisecond. So now we can go to David's specific description of the person who can come before God. This is, this is the description. Listen. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Just initial thoughts or thinking about that. Just get that going. There are four, I believe, comprehensive qualifications for coming into God's holy presence. And they should make us uh, uh, just a little uh, uncomfortable, uh, maybe even a little fearful. First, those who come before God must have clean hands. This speaks of our actions. We cannot come into God's presence with hands stained by sinful things we've done. I remember when I was in college, I took a, uh, I was a math major, so I don't know why, but I took a theater class. And one of the plays we examined was Shakespeare's Macbeth. And one of the key characters was uh, Lady Macbeth. She helped her husband uh, murder King Duncan in their home. And, the killing, and after the killing, she was overcome by guilt. And when her servant found her sleepwalking, she was convinced that her hands were stained with blood. In her sleep, she scrubbed and scrubbed, but she couldn't get the blood off her hands. She cried out, oh, out, damn spot, out, I say. Will these hands never be clean? And then there's a very real sense in which uh, Lady Macbeth's dream is our reality. Every sin we've ever committed has left a stain on our hands. Everything we've stolen, every forbidden sexual act, encounter, every hateful, prideful, jealous act stains our hands before God. Our hands are stained with a lifetime of sin. And God says that those who come into His holy place must have clean hands. But it gets worse. Along with clean hands, we, we must have a pure heart. It's not enough to be clean on the outside. I mean, maybe if you put yourself in an isolation booth, you could not do sin for a while, but we must be clean inside as well. Our thoughts and intentions and motives must be pure. Imagine how horrified you or I would be if the thoughts that have gone through our mind even in the last hour were flashed up there on that screen behind me. And God sees every thought, every intent that passes through our minds. While others might see an outward act of generosity uh, or service as a reflection of a, of a good heart. Oh, he, he's such a good person. Look what he just did. God sees our motives. He knows if what we're doing is for him or for others or for ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. 
for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. God sees what you do and why you do it, and He will reward, He will punish you accordingly. And this holy God who made you, He owns you, requires that you be pure inside. How does that make you feel? A little nervous? Terrified, maybe? And there's more. The first two requirements focus on purity, clean, pure hands and heart. The third and fourth focus on truthfulness. David says, we must not lift up our soul to what is false. This too has to do with our hearts. The expression lift up his soul basically means to trust in something. We see this in the beginning of the next psalm. If you go to Psalm 25, which is also maybe on the list, by the way. We may stay in psalms for a year or two, I don't know. Psalm 25, 1 and 2 says, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. O my God, in you I trust. When we lift up our soul to what is false, we're trusting in that, in that lie, in that falsehood. Now we might ask, how do we trust in lies? Well, we want something, uh, so we trust what is false to get it. I want people to think I'm godly. So I trust in a lie about my Bible reading and prayer time. I want a job. I trust in a lie on my resume. I want people to like me. I trust in a lie about what I believe. I don't reveal everything so they, so they don't think I'm some religious wacko. We also trust in lies to keep us from being punished or embarrassed. To save us from the consequences of what we've done as a child my parents aren't here today, so I can do a little confession. As a child and a teenager, they actually know this stuff, okay, I became very adept at lying to my parents because I did not want to face the consequences of my actions. My parents are pretty old school, and they were older school back in the old days, and so the, the consequences were pretty severe. I didn't take the cookie from the cookie jar. I didn't hit my brother as he bleeds on the floor. I didn't put a dent in the car. When you trust in lies of any kind, you show that your heart is worshiping falsehood. Trusting lies to do things for you that you should be trusting God for, should be worshiping God and trusting Him for. Tell the truth and trust God with the results. So third, do not trust lies. And fourth, and connected, uh, requirement David mentions is do not swear deceitfully. This moves from the heart to our actual words. Theologian Paul Griffiths wrote, adults who don't lie are more than original. They're almost non-existent. Perhaps we deceive by holding back the whole truth. So when our, your spouse asks, did you view pornography this afternoon? You say, no, I didn't. Your statement is technically true, but you used pornography the night before, and that, as you well know, is what the question was intended to discover. Christians must put away such rationalizations. If we want to follow Jesus, then we must retrain ourselves to put away deceit, guile, duplicity, disassembling or concealing, misleading, exaggerations, and yes, outright lying. This includes our spoken words, our written words, our texted words, our emailed words, our posted words. 
God requires that we not trust in lies and that we not speak forth lies. So in summary, God requires that those who enter into his holy presence first have clean hands. This is uh, pure, they're pure in their actions, have a pure heart, that is they're pure in their thoughts, their intentions, their motives. Third, they do not lift up their soul to what is false. They do not trust in deceit and lies. Fourth, they do not swear deceitfully. We must be truthful in what we say. God requires that we be pure, truthful people. Okay. Now think about your life, or, or just last week, maybe yesterday. How do you measure up to these requirements? Anyone like to share? Just kidding. We clearly have a problem here. Who would dare say uh, that they don't have the slightest stain of sin on their hands? That their thoughts are always pure? That they've never trusted in a lie to save them from some situation? And that they, they always tell the truth? These requirements, if we take them seriously, bring us to the end of ourselves and show us our great need. To David's question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Based on these requirements, we must all answer, not I. So we might as well uh, go home, game over, sermon over, right? That's it. We're done. Just kidding. No, I'm, I mean, I'm not kidding. That's, that's the reality of our situation. But let me ask you one more question. Who's David talking about? Has there ever been anyone who meets God's requirements? Has there ever been anyone who was totally pure and totally truthful? Well, yes, there was. There is. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only person who completely lived up to God's requirements. And I believe David, in this psalm, as in others, is pointing us to Christ. I believe it, this because it makes logical sense. Otherwise, he would be talking about no one. He certainly didn't meet these requirements, if you know anything about David. Who is he talking about? But I believe it's it more because after his resurrection, Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me... In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We can and should read the Old Testament in the light of the fact that God inspired the authors to begin revealing or foreshadowing the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here. Because again, Jesus alone fulfilled God's requirements. Did he have clean hands? The Bible says that Christ committed no sin. The author of Hebrews, writing of Jesus as our high priest, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus had clean hands, hands that served, hands that healed, hands that were pierced by nails for you and me. What about a pure heart? Of Jesus, the apostle John writes, as of the Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The heart of Christ was not filled with malice or lust or pride or greed or any other sinful thought or motivation. He was filled with grace and truth. Did he ever trust in a lie? Or did Jesus always trust in God? Of Jesus, the apostle Peter writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God who judges justly. And finally, was Jesus always truthful? Again, of Jesus, Peter writes, he committed no sin, clean hands, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't do any outward acts of sin, his heart was pure, and no deceit found in his mouth. He covered all the bases. So I hope it's clear that Jesus Christ alone met, meets all four requirements that David lists And because of that, in verse 5, our text promises, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. So Jesus received blessings and righteousness and salvation from the Lord His God, from the Father. This is clearly seen in His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was God's vindication of His sinless Son. God the Father blessed and saved His, His sinless, righteous Son by bringing Him back to life. And Jesus, after 40 days on earth, instructing his disciples, proving his resurrection, he ascended the hill of the Lord, and he will forever stand in the holy place at the right hand of his Father. Jesus Christ, the holy, majestic, glorious one, can and did enter the presence of God. Amen. Is that good? That's great. But what does that, where does that leave us? us who've not and cannot meet God's requirements. Well, here's the good news. Some of you knew this was coming. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not meet God's requirements for himself alone. He came to seek and to save the lost. To meet God's requirements for us. To make us qualified to come into God's holy presence. See the, the, see, see the glory of God in this. God, the consuming fire. Sin enters His presence. It's destroyed, but He wants to save His people. This is the only way. Glorify Him for what He's done for you. The Scripture says, For our sake God made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God we might become the righteousness of God. We might have pure hands, clean heart, be truthful people. Although Jesus Christ was pure, He became sin for us as He carried our sins on the cross. He died a sacrificial death and rose again so that our stained, guilty hands could be washed clean and our impure hearts could be renewed and purified. Christ came to wash us and purify us from the guilt that stains us and keeps us from coming before God, who is a consuming fire. In Christ, we meet God's God's requirements. We become, in Christ, both pure and truthful. But that's not the end of the good news. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross, becoming sin, so that that we might have a a free pass to heaven. He did that, praise the Lord. 
He also came. He came that by His death and resurrection, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be even now purified. That we might become like Him. Remember 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Because of Christ, I mean, this, this, this is only true because of what Christ has done. Because of Christ's sacrificial death in our place. Our faces have been unveiled. There was a veil. There was a block between us and God. That block was sin, and Jesus did away with that sin. He unveiled us, and now we can see the glory of God. And therefore, the Holy Spirit can and does transform us. This is a supernatural act that we must yield to. The the Spirit does it, and we must allow it. We must live it. The Spirit can and does transform us into people who keep God's requirements. We can and are becoming by degree more like Him. Men and women who are eager to grow in our purity and our truthfulness. This is why verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek Him. So it's talking, He did it and we're the ones who seek Him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. What's striking about this verse is that suddenly we're reading about an, uh, we were reading about an individual, but now we're reading about a group of people. One man kept God's requirements completely and perfectly, and any uh, generation, any people who seek after him, and that word seek has, is, is intense, and it's not just, hey, I'm playing hide and seek, but I'm really reading this. I was playing hide and seek yesterday with my grandsons, and you know, I was pretty tired, and so I really didn't want to find him. <laughs> but I, I eventually did. This is not that. This is intently seeking after God. Those who do are then made like him. Spurgeon said, Our Lord Jesus Christ could ascend the hill of the Lord because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And if we, by faith, are conformed to his image, we shall enter too. Amen? We are saved through diligently seeking Him, through trusting not in ourselves, not in a lie, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we're saved into a relationship with Christ, whereby the Spirit's power, we're becoming transformed into the image of Christ. And in that truth of salvation transformation, we often call sanctification, salvation and sanctification, there's great joy. But there's also a warning. And I want each and every one of us to, to, to listen well to this. Salvation is not just going to heaven. Salvation is being transformed in this life. Uh, it's not two separate things. It's all together in one package. And so, if you're not experiencing any change or, or sign of spiritual growth in your life, no transformation. You're living just as you were before you, quote-unquote, came to Christ, followed Christ, prayed the prayer, 
You need to examine yourself to see if you really belong to Jesus. If you've really sought after him for who he truly is, not just a a, a free get-out-of-hell card. Have you trusted him who is not only your Savior, but your Creator, your Lord, the King over your life? And that takes us to our final section of the Psalm 24. We've seen the Lord's right, and this should have been three sermons, by the way, I'm packing it all into one. We're, we're, we're getting close. The third isn't as long as it could be. We've seen the Lord's right as the one who created and owns us uh, to make requirements for our lives. We've seen that those requirements are, uh, we've seen that what those requirements are and who meets those requirements, specifically Jesus Christ. And we've seen that by God's grace, through seeking, saving faith, those who trust in Him alone are counted in Him pure and truthful before the Lord. We will not be consumed if we trust in Christ. And now we come to what I believe is a celebration of Christ's entry into God's presence, welcoming the one who met God's requirements. This is a a worship time, if you will. These last verses, I believe, take us to the gates of heaven to declare the triumph of Christ as he enters the presence of God. That's the context here. Some think this is a a psalm for taking the ark into Jerusalem, and it may have been used for that. I'm not saying that. There's no... That's just a speculation, but I think ultimately this is what it's about, that Christ enters the presence of God, proving that God's requirements have been met and that He is the rightful King of glory, and therefore He's welcomed into the presence of God. The picture in verses 7 through 10 is Christ ascending Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord, riding up to the gates of the heavenly city the new city, the, uh, the new Jerusalem, as its king. Lift up your heads, O gates, and, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. The king of glory who meets all the requirements that we've talked about. The gates themselves are being called upon to open for Christ as he rides in triumphantly. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told that an angel is assigned to each gate in the new Jerusalem. So with that picture in mind, we imagine an angel who responds, who is this king of glory? And the answer is shouted about, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord, same word, Yahweh, the existing one, the great I am. Remember John's gospel records that when the Jewish religious leaders rebuked Jesus for saying Abraham, who lived uh, 4,000 years ago for us, about 2,000 years ago from them, rejoiced to see his day, they said, what? Abraham was long gone. How could he have seen your day? You're, just, you're not even 50 years old. Jesus responded, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus equated himself with the great I am of Exodus 3, the existing one. Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty is Jesus Christ. And how is he mighty in battle? He triumphed over death, hell, and the grave through the cross. And so he rode up to the gate of heaven as a conqueror. The battle is won. The exchange from verses 7 and 8 is repeated in verses 9 and 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. 
He is the King of glory. Why are the gates asked to be lifted up, uh, lift up their heads and open a second time? Didn't they open the first time? Now, this could be uh, just part of poetry, the poetry of the Psalms, but it may also be hinting at something, foreshadowing something, if you will, that the King of glory will enter Zion, the heavenly city, uh, twice. The first time he entered as the great king, and they shouted out that, that he himself is mighty in battle. He defeated the enemies, his enemies, at the cross. But notice that the answer in verse 10 is different from verse 8. They shouted back the second time, the Lord of hosts is the King of glory. The hosts. Who are the hosts? They're his people. They're his army, his warriors. So this seems to give us a picture of Jesus as a great king entering the gates with a host, an army of warriors behind him. The second shout in verse 10 identifies him at the front of his people leading them into God's presence. In fact, in Revelation 19.14, we read this description of Jesus at the, at the end of time. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So this second shout seems to be hinting that our king will ride up to the gates of Zion, the heavenly city, a second time with his hosts, a, a crowd of saints following him, victorious in battle. We read about this again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the shout of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus was, rose from the dead, and those who are, follow him, we, we too can, will rise from the dead. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When Christ returns to call us home, He'll return to heaven as the Lord of hosts with crowds of people behind Him. And as those who trust in Him uh, rejoice in this glorious picture of our Lord, as we allow uh, the sight of His glory to transform us, uh, we must also ask the question, will you, are you part of Christ's host? You've seen God's requirements for you, and you've seen that you have absolutely no hope of living up to His standards, that your only hope, my only hope, is to trust in Christ alone, to meet God's requirements for you to wash your stained hands, to purify your heart and to fill you with His truth. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. So have you welcomed Him into your life as your Lord, your King, and your Savior? Is Jesus Christ your King of glory? Are you living a new life in joy and obedience to Christ? Are you living for His glory? He's the King of glory. I'm not. You're not the King of glory. We're to live for His glory. If yes, then rejoice, for the King of glory will one day lead you into the eternal presence of God. Can you imagine that day? Following Christ, worshiping Christ, and being led into the holy presence of God and not being consumed by fire as you and I deserve, 
but because of Christ being able to dwell there for all eternity. Rejoice in that. Be transformed by that truth. But if not, Christ is not your king. Know this. Your creator, he cares for you. Even if you've given yourself to some of the worst things this world has to offer. He knows you, he knows I, not fit for heaven now. So his son made a way for you. Won't you come to him today and let him save you? Let him transform you. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've made a way where there seemed to be no way. We, none of us, no, no clean hands, no pure heart, no truthfulness in us, Father, but in Christ. Father, Thank you for Jesus that he came in this amazing way, unconceivable, inconceivable to us way to live a, a, a clean, pure, truthful life and to become that perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins, takes away our sins. Lord, help us to know our heart, to examine our heart, to know if we're trusting in this King of glory, if not to trust in Him, and if we are, Lord, to rejoice in Him and to continue to grow, to continue to be transformed by Him. For it's in His name, the name of uh, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would uh, stand with me, we're going to one last time uh, close out with our, our song and worship here.